Amen. Father, this day we conform our souls and our confession, our mind, our hearts to the truth that you rule and reign, that you, dear Jesus, have ascended and have taken your rightful place before the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things and even over us. We submit to your reign and to your rule. We bow our hearts in thankfulness for dying in our place. We lift our hands rejoicing that you have freed us from the shackles of our sin. We walk one foot in front of another, knowing that you have a purpose and calling for us in your kingdom. We cast our eyes upward toward glory, knowing that the fullness of our habitation with you is ours in Christ Jesus. And we set our attention on the truth of your word, as opposed to the enemies of your kingdom that yet rage this day. Their days are numbered, yet our days are counted and assured in Christ. We have glory and beauty and the eternal habitation and dwelling of a holy God in our future. So we call to the lost Lord Jesus along the way that they might turn, repent, and join us. The only place where hope, where salvation, where healing, where the enjoyment, Lord, of the fullness of our created, what we were created for, can be realized in Christ alone. Today, as we record in our hearts, Lord, the, what is written down in Scripture, I pray that we would not soon forget, but we would be quick to apply. We, had more bold, we would be more bold in our confession and more consistent in our walk. And if there are any lost in the hearing of your gospel proclaimed this day, I pray that they would turn from their sin, place faith in Christ, and walk with us towards the glorious hope of redemption fully realized in heaven one day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, praise the Lord for granting to us in His grace the gift of fellowshipping together and beholding His Word. Today, turn with me. As you're able to Genesis 47, let's continue in our Genesis series, considering verses 21 through 27. Egypt versus Israel, part 2. My thesis is that Moses, in authoring these scriptures, is setting up a contrast between the pagan order of Egypt and the godly order of Israel, which would soon take shape, at least in the text, but 400 years coming, when he, Moses, would be ordered by and ordained by God as a prophet to the people and be given specific, specific explicit, uh, in, in fact, revelatory instructions on how to order a nation in a godly way so as to be a hope and a light to all the peoples. In this message, my aim, therefore, is to condemn idolatrous claims to power and instead to exalt Jesus Christ. Today, there are idolatrous claims to power. They need to be condemned by the church. And in their place, as we have just sung, we need to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ. Correctly understanding Genesis 47, I submit will help us to do this. With your hearts open and out of reverence to the Word of God, and as you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Holy Scripture today? This is Genesis 47, verses 21 through 27. Here is the word of God. As the people, as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, for a fifth shall be your own. As, the seed, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves, and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So this text is a matter of some controversy. You'll find, even among sound scholars, in particular areas of Scripture, a wider range of interpretation 
because it's not so easy to ascertain exactly what's intended. So I give you my best attempt at understanding these scriptures with a little bit of room for analyzing yourself and a little less certainty than other passages may have. Nevertheless, I believe we can look to the greater context of Scripture and draw some sound conclusions. And among these, I think we see in the text a definite contrast being drawn. I've touched upon this before. I continue with this theme now. There's a contrast, that is to say, between the priesthood of Egypt and the priesthood that will be set up under Moses. And I will go further this morning to expand. There is a contrast between the politics of Egypt, a representative pagan nation, Joseph notwithstanding, and the politics, if you will, of the Hebrew nation, which God will establish again in Exodus under Moses. So the difference in fortunes between the citizens of Egypt and the covenant family, I believe, is significant. Whereas they were sold, as, sold themselves, that is to say, as slaves, the Egyptians, to the Pharaoh at the time, we notice in 27, on the other hand, the Israelites, albeit foreigners, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and instead of foregoing their possessions, they gained possess possessions in it. Instead of famine, they were fruitful. And instead of languishing in this great hardship, they multiplied greatly. So we see a contrast even here. This foreshadows a great contrast to come, where the correctly ordered and instituted and godly ordained constituted nation of Israel would be a light to the peoples. The taxation policies and the slavery of the people under famine conditions is the experience of the native citizens, while the Hebrews enjoy liberty and favor at this time. Moses' account of the political and cultural dynamics of Egypt and Genesis 47, therefore I suggest, serve as a contrast and backdrop for the new nation that God will establish to come when they exodus from this land. Here's a two sentences or so review from last sermon in this passage. The nation of, uh, the nation of Israel's experience, identity, calling, and social order was meant and would be distinct from the pagans. Their experience, their identity, their calling, and the order of their society, their social order, would be distinct from the pagans. So as, the lineage, so as to glorify God and to be a light and blessing to the nations. Deuteronomy 4, 5-8 through 8 says that the nations, in fact, will be jealous of the godly order and law that they will see witnessed in the people, among the people of God when they rightly follow His commands. Genesis 22, 17-18, after Isaac uh, is saved from sacrifice by the lamb in the bush, God prophesies to Abraham and his lineage that they would both possess the gates of his enemies and become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Fulfillment of this text is recorded in our passage today. Joseph is running the place. He is possessed, in a sense, the gates of Egypt. And this passage sets up a contrast in the order of Egypt versus the blessings of Israel to hold out that light, to shine the light on the blessings and benefit and God's purposes and glory through a covenant people, a people covenantally bound to their creator God. Meanwhile, this morning, we analyzed the constitution of Egypt, if you will, which codified slavery to the state, foreshadowing a time when the Israelites themselves would fall victim to a future Pharaoh, Exodus 1.8, a Pharaoh, that is to say, who did not know Joseph. So my heading today and two main points is quite simple. Genesis 47 sets up, first, firstly, a priesthood contrast, and secondly, a political contrast. Yes, we will get into politics this morning, so buckle up and get ready to be offended, right? Genesis 47 sets up a priesthood contrast. Notice that however few details we have about the priesthood in Egypt, they are significant, and we can draw from them helpful distinctions between a pagan priestly order and a godly one, as we, touch base, or as we touch upon other passages in Scripture, particularly in Genesis or Exodus and following. Verse 20, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them, the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Here's a question, kids. Did everybody sell their land? No. Who was able to keep their land? Only the... Does anyone remember? 
Only the priests. Very good. Someone was listening. As for the people, he made them servants from one end of the country to the other. 22. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Do you notice? This priestly order is subsidized by the government and they're able to retain their land. The only private property holders in Egypt at this time are the priests. I, I would suggest that that's a little signal in the text because when we compare this to Israel later, we find in fact the opposite is true. Did you know that in the land of Egypt, under Moses, as God had given him specific, specific instructions to order the nation, the priests themselves, in fact, had no land, while everyone else enjoyed the benefit and privilege of private property. More on that in a moment. I turn to Numbers 18, and while you're turning there, let me say something about a pagan priest class. The priest class elite of Egypt enjoyed social privileges in ancient Egypt at this time. They were subsidized by the government. They received the favor of Pharaoh. They were able to keep their land, and they were, I'm sure, happy even at, and uh, totally satisfied with all the foodstuffs they need and everything else at the expense of the people during this time of hardship. This, I suggest, is a pattern throughout history and is alive and well today. Nations that do not have a godly order will elevate an ungodly priest class. Let me give you a definition of a wicked priesthood. What is an ungodly priest class? Insofar as there, are, there is vested authority in any person or segment of society without reference to the Word of God, because the Word of God is the only source by which all authority, legitimate authority is derived. So insofar as there is vested authority in any person or segment of society, any institution, any government agency, those are very common in our society today, without reference to the Word of God, you have elevated an ungodly priest class. All legitimate authority is derived from the Word of God. Therefore, all legitimate priestly leadership, ordered society, is derived from the Scriptures. Societies must have order. Hierarchy is a reality in the universe, whether we like it or not. There will be leaders, there will be followers. There will be elite, there will be the poor, and so forth, in every society. There's this kind of inherent sorting mechanism. The question is, by what standard are those, is a society, a social order organized? And I'm making the point to you on the theological conviction of the sufficiency of Scripture that that standard must be the Word of God. And if you don't use the Word of God to rightly order your society, you will elevate false gods and a false priest class. Here are a few examples today, as far as I can discern. Scientists and science is a false priest class. There is so much authority that is deferred or delegated to science without reference to the Word of God. We care little, the news cares little, or the internet seems totally oblivious to whether or not these scientists are submitted to the Lord and have a biblical worldview. No, we reference their studies as an appeal to authority to justify what we want to do independent of what the Word of God says. We do the same with scholarship, higher education, the same with government agencies. We do the same with legislatures and lawmakers and politics. And celebrity uh, retains some sort of strange authority without reference to the Word of God. And these people shape and influence our lives, social influencers and so forth. And who can forget the CDC, Center for Disease Control, the great medical establishment who is deferred to as help and hope all the way through COVID and were elevated without reference to the Word of God as a legitimate authority to get us through this great crisis. How did that turn out for us? Not so great. Why? Because we as a people were tempted to worship a false authority, a false priesthood without reference to the Word of God. Majority opinion could be this, technology and its applications, even artificial intelligence, a popular idea. People lament in our society today, and I believe they're right in saying this, we have a two-tiered justice system in this society. If you're well-connected, if you're rich and influential, it doesn't seem like you're measured by the same standard as the poor who would certainly go to jail if they committed the same kinds of crimes that Hunter Biden does. And it is true. We have a two-tiered system of justice. Lady Justice in our society is no longer blind, but she has wide opened her eyes, and she plays favorites. And why does she? Just metaphorically speaking, because we have false priest, false priest classes. We've elevated people, institutions, and orders in our society to places 
of undeserved and illegitimate authority without reference to the Word of God. And insofar as we have, we as Christians need to not follow them. We need to call them out and call out idolatry as far as we see it and discern from Scripture and point people to the only true high priest, Jesus Christ, and say with authority that from the Scriptures alone, all true leadership and order is derived. And I'm telling you, if revival takes hold in this nation, repentance comes to America, these idols are some of the, will be some of the first to fall, false priest classes. They were there in Egypt, they're in America today. So let us contrast the priesthood, if you will, of Egypt to that which was established under God in Numbers 18. Notice what we said before, a difference in even how property was allotted. Verse 20, <clears throat> and the Lord said to Aaron, so Aaron, of course, the high priest and representing the priestly order, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people. You notice a godly priesthood does not benefit themselves at the expense of others, but instead the Lord himself would be their portion. To the Levites, verse 21, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do their service in the tent of meeting so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting. They shall bear their iniquity. Do you see the priests are called in a sense to lay down their lives, to serve as ministers of the Lord, to sacrificially worship the Lord represent the people, and consider the Lord himself a sufficient inheritance, and to not to serve motivated by material wealth, things, property, holding. 24. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. You see, Genesis 47 sets up a contrast, does it not? Whereas under a godly order, the priests are not self-serving at the expense of others, but instead lay down their lives under the Lord and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, see the best interests of the people. Meanwhile, in pagan societies, not so. As for the people, they are servants, slaves of the state. Only the land of the priests, they did not buy. The priests had a fixed allowance, they had special favors, and they profited it at the expense of the people. But by, how would the priests be supported at the time of Moses. They would be provided for by virtue of the worship of God. If the people were godly, if they were obedient to the word, if they would bring their tithes, then the priests would have plenty. By way of the tithe, 10% of the portions of the wealth would be offered in devotion to the Lord, from which a tithe of this would then in turn be offered to the priests. The way a godly society was ordered in the Old Testament was such that it rose and fall upon the worship of the Lord. If God was not worshipped, well, then things would begin to fall apart. The priests would go hungry. If God was exalted, if the people were faithful, if they worshipped the Lord, then things would be well-ordered and people would be taken care of. Things would run smoothly and God would be glorified as the nation would prosper. We need to look at the way our society is ordered and ask ourselves, if we flourish, who gets the credit and the glory? Is it a false priest class or is it the Lord himself? I advocate that we change our constitution to unequivocally say Jesus Christ is Lord of this society. Therefore, if this society thrives, who do we credit? The legislatures, the priest class of our day, the scientists, the CDC, Dr. Fauci, Joe Biden, or the next presidential candidate from the Republican ticket challenging him as the only one to save this society, the most important election in our lifetime, and if his administration is successful, he gets to write his legacy at the one who turned the corner at the last minute? No. All of this is idolatry. We need to unequivocally say, this nation belongs to Jesus Christ. We choose to build our society upon his name alone, such that when we prosper and when the economy does well, the Lord is glorified and the people are satisfied to live in the light of His presence. It's all about who's at the top, the highest authority. Is it God Himself or is it some pagan idol? We see the distinction between these two when we look upon the Scriptures, Genesis 47, verses Numbers 18, as an example. Egyptian priests, priests and property, 
And now let's consider this in light of gospel hierarchy. We see even further instruction in the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke 22. Jesus tells us what godly leadership is supposed to look like. We have the perfect example in Him. Jesus deserved all authority, all worship, all submission, and He will have it. He was perfect, He was sinless, He was powerful, He was God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Yet Jesus, in laying down His life, in taking up the cross, in serving us and washing the disciples' feet, did not count that glory He well deserved as something that that would make His calling and redemption beneath Him, but instead took up the call to serve the Lord by being a sacrifice Himself on behalf of a wicked people who didn't deserve it. And this becomes the model for godly leadership. Luke twenty-two twenty-four: 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are, all, are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one, or one who serves? Is it not one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. How do you be a godly leader? How do you exercise authority rightly in a well-ordered church, the kingdom of God, or society by extension? You recognize that Jesus is the model of godly authority. That you don't advance yourself and your own well-being at the expense of others, but instead quite the opposite. Leadership is verified and qualified by those who are willing to serve the Lord first at the sacrifice of their own comforts in order that He might be glorified and, the lo- and by love of neighbor, they might benefit as well. This was the case of the priesthood of old. This is ultimately the case uh, in the picture of Jesus Christ Himself. I love a companion text to this effect in Mark ten forty five, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus Christ, we don't have an Egyptian priest. We don't have one that demands our obedience without sacrifice. But when we come together to worship the Lord, it's the most amazing thing of all. The perfect, sinless, holy one stooped low and took on our sin that we might exalt him forever. And as he gathers worshipers around him, he does so through repentance and faith and the overflowing joy of a heart redeemed, realizing in our sin we deserve hell. And in his holiness, he was the last thing in the world, the most horrific thought of all is that he would hang on a cross in shame, but he did this for us. And so this, our, this, our high priest, makes the kings of the world jealous because he assembles for him a die-hard group of followers who will go with him to the very grave and worship him out of love and devotion. Even when we bring our tithes, this is, Paul tells us it is not as an exaction, if you will. We are to worship the Lord out of a joyful, giving, generous heart, not because he charges us tax and tribute the way the godless kings do. No, the gospel hierarchy of leadership is verified in these examples of the priesthood of old fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Without time to turn there, you can mark for further study 1 Samuel 2, 12-17. Two wicked sons of Eli. Why were they wicked? Well, they were priests. But what they would do, uh, uh, typically what would happen is a priest would take a 10%-ish portion of an offered sacrifice. They would stab the fork into the cooked meal, and then whatever was brought up on that fork, that would supply the priests with their food and so forth. No, they uh, were taskmasters over the people and demanded by appealing to their authority as priests that they give them all of the meat and so forth. I can't remember exactly the details of how this went forth, but it illustrated something, that these priests, the reason why they were wicked as they were profiting themselves selfishly and materially at the expense of the people, and they were not interested in worshiping God, but instead in worshiping themselves. And so they were struck dead. God judged them, as we see throughout the scriptures. God will judge, ultimately speaking, every wicked priestly order or person who claims authority, who does not derive that right to rule from the only legitimate source, the word of God, 
And how do we judge fruit that they are ordered accordingly? When we see that they follow Jesus Christ, Jesus is their hero, and they seek more to serve others and ultimately him than themselves. This is a God-ordered priesthood. A God-ordained priesthood, back in Numbers 18, has other marks as well. They would bear the iniquity of the people. The priesthood of Egypt, they profited off the backs of the people during famine. But upon the, representatively speaking, backs of the priesthood in uh, Israel, they, in fact, would bear the iniquity of the people. This, of course, was a, pic- was a picture of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, who on his own back bore the iniquity of you and I. When those stripes and cat and nine tails, whatever it was, lashed the back and laid it bare of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, when those spikes of our high priest were driven through his hands and feet and the thorn was crushed upon his head, he was bearing the iniquity of his people. In the Old Testament priesthood, there was a picture of this. Back in the day, there would be an order that would symbolize what was to come. In Numbers 18, we read of this as well. Verse 1, So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity connected with the sanctuary. You and your sons shall bear the iniquity connected with the priesthood. And with you bring your brothers, also the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your brother, and so forth, and further instructions as to this calling of ministry. And then in verse 23, we read again, So that the people of Israel do not come near, 22, the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, that they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. And once again, drawing a a distinction between the priest classes of the pagans and the priesthood of the godly, whereas these people are motivated by property material gain, you instead have an atonement, a symbolic atonement call. They would, the priesthood in Israel, bear the sins of the people symbolically. They would serve in an an atonement offering role. They would represent the people in the presence of God. They would pray. They would intercede on their behalf for the covering of their sins. They would often offer sacrifices, substitute animals in the place of the people to satisfy the wrath of God. Verse 5, And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. This is, in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, three complicated words, which I will explain. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Penal, punishment. Substitutionary, on behalf of another. Atonement, the covering of sins. A punishment is required by someone else in order for our sins to be covered. Pictured in the Old Testament priesthood by the offering of these animals and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who became the Lamb of God for us. These are marks of a God-ordered priesthood. It takes true atonement into account, true ministry before the Lord. It lays down oneself instead of exalts oneself because God is worthy. It, It recognizes that in God's kingdom, the strongman hierarchy is not a thing, but instead Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, is the model of true, verified qualifications to serve any leadership capacity. And in this way, Genesis 47, verses Numbers 18, sets up quite the contrast. A priesthood contrast, if you will. The wicked versus the righteous. The pagan versus the biblically ordered. And therefore, we can uh, compare and contrast, and I trust, learn a thing or two. The second thing we might learn is that Genesis 47, second major point, not only sets up a priesthood contrast, but also a political contrast. So let's go back to Genesis 47. And this may be a more disputed uh, area of Scripture still as far as its interpretation, but I will wade into these troubled waters anyway. (laughs) Let's see how we do. 23, Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, 
You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So basically establishing a taxation at 20%, if I understand my fifths correctly, is, was the administrative decision of Joseph at this time. Was this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Well, it's interesting. We need to apply some sound hermeneutics here. And I would suggest to you this is not prescriptive. In other words, it's not telling all godly rulers what to do, but instead descriptive. This is describing what Joseph did. And then there's a second distinction. One is there's an ordinary way under a God-ordered society to organize something even like taxes. And then there's an extraordinary way where under certain circumstances, excuse me, there might be a difference. Here, are, there are three points that I would like to make as far as Joseph's taxation policies go. Number one, we see here a proto-despoiling. In other words, what is happening is the wealth and the holdings and even the flocks of the wicked are, being, uh, are taken by the hand of judgment through the administration of Joseph, and they're heading straight to Goshen. This would happen again. It was a foreshadow of the people prospering and the wealth of the wicked laid up for the just, which would happen again, as I say, in Exodus. 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. When the flocks were turned over to Pharaoh, it was something of an anticipation, a foreshadowing of the wealth of the Egyptians flooding into the storehouses of Egypt later as judgment. And there were those who joined Egypt, I'm sorry, joined Israel when they repented of their false idolatry, and they thus would benefit from the great social order and the provision and prosperity of the well-ordered or the godly people. And so this is going on. Secondly, it's a judgment, as I said. The people, if they unrepentantly placed hope in the Pharaoh or their gods, there was a price to pay for this. And God disciplines them through means such as this, even though he has mercy and allowing them through Joseph's order to retain some of their you know, sustainability. And thirdly, as I mentioned before, Joseph's decisions in this regard set up contrast, the difference between one political order and another. A political contrast is here. Let's consider under this the relationship between money and worship. It's an important one. It's necessary for us to understand this relationship in order to properly critique or discern political dynamics as Christians. We need to understand the relationship between these two aspects of human society, worship and money. If we don't understand, then we may inadvertently be worshiping a false god by our heart and as it relates to money. Didn't Jesus himself say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? In other words, the means that we have at our disposal is one way to quantify our soul and where our heart is at. The things we value, that is to say, we spend money on. So, it's a cliche, and you've heard it. Popular idol is money. People worship the almighty dollar. And I'm sure that's true as far as it goes. Some people are driven to materialistic gain, and they worship at the hill of success. However, I think it might be more precisely the case that people worship with their money. What someone spends their money on, or how money is allocated, is a mark of worship. There is a relationship between the two. Money, this is to say, is an instrument of worship, and we see that in numbers with respect to the tithe, and I submit that we see that with respect to taxation here. As an instrument of worship, Egypt and other idolatrous governments demand the subservience of the people through confiscatory, unjust taxation and tribute. An idol, an idolatrous government, will demand more than God allots. They will seek to consolidate wealth for themselves. Why? Because they lust after the worship of the people. To demand money from someone that is not yours to take is not only theft, but it's idolatry, especially in the case of a power and illegitimate authority that says, simply because I have a monopoly on force, let's say, um, I demand that you give me this much money for all these ostensibly good things, they might argue, that I will do. This is one of those things we must hold accountable to Scripture because there's a relationship between money and worship. So thou shalt not steal. 
You're not supposed to steal from your neighbor. This is against God's law. It's an egregious violation of the commandments. What about a government? Oh, it's okay for a government to steal? I don't think so. How do we know whether a government is stealing or not? Again, we must go to the Word of God to find our standard. And if the government is stealing, is doing so, because they have the ability and the mere raw force to do so, then what are they doing? They are demanding the people, uh, the obedience and the submission and the subjugation of their people as an idol, as an instrument of worship in Egypt and other idolatrous governments. The subservience of the people is demanded by this way and others, taxation and tribute. When the, a nation would conquer another one, they would say, you know, proof to the king and the conqueror would be when that money came in, it was, a, it was a symbol that I am your ruler. And it was a reminder to the people that he controls our destiny. Kings must serve the Lord with fear, lest they tremble in the way. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. In other words, it should be a fearful prospect for anyone who has the power to levy taxes that they would do so without first acknowledging the scripture. Because if they don't, they run the risk of setting themselves up as an idol to smash by the rod of iron in Jesus Christ's own hands, who in his well-ordered society, by the way, only asked, only sought 10%. State-enforced worship is an attempt by a means, by these kind of means, and I think it needs to be critiqued. Now, uh, others have disagreed with me, and I, uh, a man who's... Uh, uh, theology I otherwise quite respect, claims that this text gives the government a sort of 20% permission to tax his people. But I disagree with that. I, I believe what's here is a contrast that is being set up. In an ungodly nation, you so, sell yourselves as slaves, so uh, you sell yourself as slaves, and the government get, allows you, by their great permission-granting authority, to keep 80%. There's a different kind of government that we see in Israel that's organized not by this uh, top-down structure, but instead by tithe. And so let's compare and contrast again, taxation versus tithe. Turn to Deuteronomy 14, where God lays out the order of his society. Quite different, again, as you might imagine. Deuteronomy 14, we begin to read the instructions of God through Moses for the people. 22, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So why are the people to tithe to the Lord? That they may learn to fear him. When we bring our offerings to the Lord, as we usually close with an announcement that there's a box in the back labeled tithes and offerings. The goal in that is to ascribe to the Lord. It's part of our worship service, I would argue. When we bring our tithe to the Lord, we are learning to fear Him. We bring our tithe to the Lord willfully and joyfully because we know from Him comes everything, that other 80%. We don't look to the government to provide our needs. That would be idolatrous. We look to Jesus Christ and his well-ordered society, and his word as the standard. And even if we are slaves to the government by some subjugation and false authority that they wield, nevertheless, 1 Corinthians 9, we bring in those ties. We bring in, 2 Corinthians 9, joyfully our gifts to the Lord. Why? Because we serve ultimately a higher and a different master. As a tenth of an offering of worship, acknowledging the true source of provision, that we may learn to fear the Lord always. A false government will, will levy a tax and a tribute. Why? Because they want us to fear them always. No, we do not fear them first and foremost. We fear the Lord. In Egypt and other societies who enforce taxation through fear of government, demanding 20% and even more, they remind the citizens that they are slaves and that by the virtue and benefits, by the, you know, by the love and the compassion, by the state programs, through the organization of society, they have their daily bread. This is idolatry. In Pharaoh's Egypt, the state subsidized the priest class by enslaving the people, and then they exacted heavy taxes upon them, the people having lost all of their authority in selling themselves as slaves. There's a big difference here. 
2 Corinthians 9, as I mentioned, we are to joyfully, willingly, and sacrificially give in light of the principle of money as worship. When we sincerely honor the Lord and worship Him, that sincere and legitimate charity springs from the heart and therefore is voluntary by definition. And so the church receives offerings as the saints are so moved. You've probably seen the studies before, but those who are socialists or those who rely on government or see that there's really no higher authority than how we order ourselves according to these kinds of measures, they give the least to charity. But generally speaking, Christians, religious people, give much more. This is a good and godly thing. The disparity should be even greater. But those who recognize that the Lord is their provider and that it is a joy and service to Him to give of what they have, this is a way to worship Him, and it's a voluntary act, worship springing from the heart. If we did it only because we had to, then it would remove that element of active worship before the Lord. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, this is not an exaction, it's not a tax, but instead it's a sign of your great love for the churches. You know, when this gift package would go wrapped in oil skins or what have you, and was closely guarded by Paul or Timothy, this uh, bundle of money that was scraped together by poor people and some rich people too, but most likely commoners in these areas of Asia Minor, and finally went all the way to fund the needs of the next church plant out in Spain, let's say, or Macedonia. When it arrived, the church was overwhelmed. Why? Because they knew it wasn't a tax. They knew it wasn't given because the people had to. But instead, when they received those funds from the good hearts of the church all the way across the sea, they realized that this church had faith and trusted God even in their lack to give. And that money was a symbol that God would provide for them and that God had unified them with their loving brothers and sisters on the other side of the Mediterranean to satisfy the needs of the growing kingdom of God. And when we give to I Care Ethiopia, and when mercy comes and makes its presentation, our hearts will overflow with joy because many of us were able, by the grace of God, to give toward that work of rescuing widows and orphans overseas. If that was simply a program levied by tax, a humanitarian effort by our self-authoritative, or our government who seeks authority unto itself and does not defer to the Lord, then it'd be much less meaningful. Those relationships wouldn't be created and the kingdom of God would be stymied. And instead, what you would have is an idol exalted in its place. And every social program that seeks to feed and clothe mankind outside of God's order of doing things is simply an affront to his authority. So says we will accomplish this a different, by a different way and a different means. And so we need to recognize these things and discern even policies where they are aligned with God's word and where they fall short. To make this point even stronger and to close this message up with we add another contrast, turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. In the context, the people have grown weary of the godly ordered society that was established for them was not that God had forbidden that they would have a king. Deuteronomy 17 said, it's fine to have a king. You can set one up for yourself, only don't let him accrue all kinds of chariots for himself, war machine, all kinds of wealth for himself, you know, at the expense of the people. And don't let him make a bunch of marriage alliances with the nations, false grounds for peace between your neighbors, breaking God's law along the way. No, let him serve under the law of God. Can you think of a king that broke all these three commands, kids? So God said, don't take too many wives for yourself. Don't build your military machine too big. And don't uh, collect too much wealth for yourself. Can you guys think of a king that broke all three? Very famous in scripture. Who is it? Solomon. Very good. That's right. And it's very interesting that Solomon in his administration broke those three commandments of Deuteronomy 17. But there was a reason for those commandments. So that the king did not exalt himself as an idol. Did not exact undue authority. Well, the people grew weary and tired of the justice system, such as God has ordained, and they weren't content with just a prophet speaking on behalf of the Lord, such as Samuel. And they didn't like the system of judges and rotation, but they wanted a strong man like their neighbors. What did this desire betray? Heart of idolatry. A return in their political preferences to the leeks and onions of Egypt, if you will. 1 Samuel 8.10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, 
These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Does it sound like Solomon in his sin? Does it sound like Egypt that we just read about in chapter 47 of Genesis 13? He will take your daughters to, perf- to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. You see, the people will become slaves. He will demand a tenth from them. 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. A king like other nations, a strong man like Pharaoh, the sinful heart of a people sometimes has more faith that a strong man like Pharaoh will provide for the needs than the way God has ordered things and delegated his responsibility, his jurisdictions, his leadership, his authority. You know, it's hard to trust the Lord, to take responsibility, and to live by your own means that God will supply and trust, you know, the fullness of your crops and your labors and your stewardship. You know, sometimes we like to collectivize our risk with our neighbors and maybe tax our neighbors through a a middleman who would take and supply our needs and uh, that way and so forth, through government entitlement and otherwise. Samuel outlines three categories by which a tyranny or tyrannical government may be discerned. First, what human rights can you measure? By what human right measure or standard can you identify a tyrant? Well, military conscription and slavery to the state, verses 11 and 13. By what human right measure can you identify a tyrant? Military conscription, slavery to the state. Secondly, by what stewardship standard can you identify a tyrant? Consolidation of wealth, property, military, and industry on behalf of the state. I told you we're getting political today. 14 through 20. Third, by what economic standard can you measure tyranny? The demand of as much or more than God himself from the people via tribute or tax. And this is where I hold that 20% is God is an ungodly number. God requires of us 10, if you will. And so any more than that is an affront to God himself. I'm better than God. I demand more. How much are you taxed? Well, if you do a quick uh, Google search, like I did, you may find a taxation in American society varies from state to state. So the lowest tax you'll probably pay as an average citizen is in Alaska at 20%. goes all the way up to New Jersey at guess how much? If you have 60 in your mind, you are correct. From 20% to 60%, our godless, self-authoritative state in a rebellion against the Lord exacts more than he does. Is this merely a political message? No. This is a message on idolatry. The thing is, in our society today, and many Christians are guilty of this, we've elevated faith in Egypt over faith in God. And the scriptures teach us to identify and discern how we know we have deferred to a strong man like Pharaoh and not trusted in the Lord our God. I'm not advocating that you not pay your taxes, but what I am advocating is that you recognize an idol when you see one and you don't agree And you don't just go along to get along, but you're willing to point out that this idol must fall and Jesus Christ is Lord. And even one simple way to do this is to pay our tithes, even though we are overtaxed by a tyrannical, godless government. To say, I don't care about all that, uh, except that they must repent and turn. But until they do, I will not let an idol take away from me the money that I am choosing to give into the kingdom of God anyway. And so we take that step of faith and out of our lack, even in an unjust society, fund the kingdom of God. It is a statement of, of, uh, it is a statement, it's taking a stand against the authorities and the principalities of our day that say, I will be as God, providing your daily bread, providing your health care, your social security, your everything else. Look to me, vote for me, and so on and so forth. The church is called to be different, a light in this godless age. So let us ask ourselves how we might be a light. I've just mentioned one. We give generously, even out of our lack, into the kingdom of God. Let me mention another. We declare Jesus Christ and his leadership as the only one to follow. 
We boldly proclaim his crown rights in every area of society. We look for little ways, if you will, or specific points, better said, to draw a distinction between the idols of our day, the Nebuchadnezzars that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God, and Jesus Christ, the true model of leadership. And we, com and we command and we pray that our leaders would repent and conform to Jesus Christ, who did not benefit himself on the backs of the people, but instead bore the sins of the people on his own back. And we and all legitimate leaders are called to do similarly, to lay down our lives, to take up our cross, and to follow him. We have a king. We have the emperor of the universe and the creator of the cosmos that we worship. All powerful and all deserving of all our allegiance. And he will have his worship. But we have a king that laid down his life and gave us the pattern and model for leadership in every sphere, whether it's family, church, government, and society. And so we exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And as we lift up the gospel and his example of authority and power, it provides the standard and the hope whereby we can turn from our sins, repent, and be more like him. We often pray, Lord Jesus, make me more like you. And we imagine that to be a very individual thing, and this is good. We should also pray that leaders and institutions and government structures and social order should also pray, Dear Jesus, how do I make these policies in light of your holy word? Dear Jesus, as the commander-in-chief of the United States of America, how do I be more like you? And when this happens, we will see a massive transformation in America. In the meantime, let us recognize the difference between godliness and idolatry and not compromise and pray that God would provide for us healing and hope in the future that can only come through his grace alone, by the standard of his word alone, through repentance through, to the only way, truth and life, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to consider your word in light of our own situation. I thank you that your word is sufficient, that it never fails, it never withers, it never fades. Lord, the plans and schemes of man rise and fall, and each time they collapse, it is proof that you are sovereign and your Lord. Help us to remember these things, Lord, even in a day of ubiquitous wickedness. Help us to remember that you are Lord even when it seems like the wicked exalt for a season or are fat and happy in their ungodliness. Remind us, Lord, to compassionately and faithfully pray for them and announce to them that there is a reckoning to come, that they and even our neighbors might turn from their sin to you in repentance and faith. In the meantime, Lord, help us not to adopt the values of Egypt, if you will, but instead, Lord, to stand upon your word. Bring conviction to our hearts and ways in particular areas where we might be a better light a more bold uh, ambassador and a more consistent testimony to the truth of your scriptures. And all this, may you be glorified and your church sanctified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.